I would like to acknowledge the Gurringai people and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. The Gurringai people are the traditional owners of this land where we meet today. If you or someone you know needs assistance with addiction or is experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline's 24-hour support service on 131114. If you're overseas, contact the relevant support network in your location. Welcome to a compelling two-part episode of Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. We have the privilege of delving into a narrative that revolves around addiction, resilience, redemption and empowerment. Our guest, Danny Shannon, is the founder of Encapsulator, a video journaling tool. Danny's story is nothing short of extraordinary. Welcome to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. The host, Karen Sander, has the privilege of interviewing individuals from all walks of life, each with their own powerful and inspiring stories. The guests share their life experiences, and in doing so, they celebrate the transformative magic of storytelling. To learn more, visit www.thestoryroom.au and explore the private membership area, the Backstage Pass. Welcome, Danny Shannon, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Karen. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Danny, um, when I first heard your story, I was absolutely gobsmacked. You were on the stage at my event, my live event, The Story Room, and you had the audience in the palm of your hand. And they were just watching, staring and listening to you as you recounted your story of addiction and the lunacy of all the things you got up to. And then um, during that period of addiction and at that event, you started talking about your jailbreak and Uh, that absolutely floored them. This is the Northern Beaches, by the way, you know, so it's sort of probably something that just not... Yeah. everyday life and not to say that there's no one in jail up here <laughs> there are but um how did you start using drugs and what were the early years as an addict like for you yeah sure Karen just just on the jail escape I guess it's it is a super unique thing isn't it like not many people <laughs> in their lifetime can say that they've escaped from Silverwater prison so um yeah that tale always does get a bit of attention um, look, I picked up drugs and alcohol at the age of 14. Um, I always talk about my mum being this beautiful, loving mum, and I think it's important that we acknowledge a little bit of my childhood because mum was this beautiful, loving mum, and I truly believe today the values and morals that I have I, I got from her. My dad, on the other hand, is an absolute legend, but his nickname's Shonky. He taught me everything <laughs> I shouldn't know. So I had this beautiful, loving mum. I feel like she kind of moulded this beautiful, spirited guy who I am today, but my dad, um, bless him, he just taught me everything I shouldn't know. Um, and at the age of 14, I picked up um, alcohol and pot um, and nitric oxide, which is a big thing. It's, I think it still is. They call them Nang's horrible putrid drug that people, kids get stuck into inhaling gas. And anyway, I got on those three substances. And um, that, that night I was in this outdoor roller skating ring up in Bundaberg. My first time I picked up, I was with a bunch of mates who I had only just met, but we're all out there partying. And I kind of remember 
I think I drank myself unconscious and waking up and seeing like these broken glass, bodies laying around. I remember thinking that was mad, you know, like let's go again. And I feel like that was my introduction to drugs and alcohol and um, it kind of just escalated from there, Karen. Yeah, well, a bit crazy. And it's, there's probably many kids out there that's, yeah. and people whose journeys started in a similar way. Sure. But, Danny, your journey from the streets to incarceration oh. is truly mind-blowing. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> The audience absolutely loves that story. So as we delve into this part of the story, can you shed light on the circumstances that led to your time behind bars? What were the factors that resulted into you being locked up? Look, it's it's pretty simple. I picked up heroin at the age of 15 um, and pretty much I'll tell you what, up until that stage I'd tried speed, ecstasy, LSD, alcohol, pot, all of that stuff, I'm sure it wasn't good for me, but it wasn't until the day I picked up heroin that was um, the beginning of the end um, to say, you know, like it didn't take long. It was probably six weeks before I was locked up in boys' homes at the age of 16. By then, um, you know, I'd started to write fraudulent checks in my own name. I was a genius. Um, <laughs> and and I, I would, you know, like I had many, many warrants and stuff too because I would never pay, you know, train fares or anything like that. And back then what would happen is if you had these warrants or if you had, you know, a charge for fraud, which I, that was one of my first charges, um, they they chucked me in, um, in the boys' home, uh, Cobbin Boys' Home, um, which is a juvenile detention centre. Um, that was my introduction. Um, had to do about 21 days because I had a couple of thousand dollars worth of warrants back then and unless somebody paid for my warrants, I had to do the time uh, and no one paid. Um, but um, And then by the age of 18... Um, I was locked up in Parramatta prison. I spent my 18th birthday in Parramatta jail, the big boys jail. And so, look, to answer your question, it escalated quite quickly. It's basically um, the heroin had a hold of me that I, you know, I was this beautiful, um, <laughs> I don't know where I'll get that from. It's beyond, I was going to say this beautiful kid. I kind of was. I was a good kid, you know, like I was quite a popular kid too. I had a lot of mates because I used to be a really good skateboard rider. And because I had this mad mum, um, we used to go ripping off building sites and stuff, and we build these skate ramps in my at my house. And um, because of that, like I had a lot of friends, you know, call them friends, whatever, you know, they kids would come around and skate. And because I was a good skater too, I was kind of, I don't know, a little bit, um, you know, popular maybe. Um, but by the time I picked up heroin, those friends started to slowly or, sorry, quickly um, drop off, you know, and by the time, you know, I started going to prison, um, people just thought, well, this guy's a bit too crazy for us now. And um, like I said, I was in jail by 18. I'd started to steal, um, break into building sites, steal from schools, um, do break and enters. Um, stealing cars, high-speed police pursuits. Um, one one thing I shouldn't be proud of this, but I would never, um, I would never pull over. Um, that was, and the thing is, I hate to say this, but I got away half the time as well. You know, like um, so, and that would lead to a lot of um more trouble. You know, um, and basically, Karen, I know we'll talk about the jail escape, but between the age of eighteen and twenty-eight, I spent the majority of that time in prison. Um, all over Sydney, a little bit in New South Wales, you know, Bathurst, Goulburn, Juni, um, Parramatta, Silverwater, um, Parkley, all all the all the jail systems, you know. 
Yeah, I know a few of those areas, Junie, especially I used to go there for work and it's only a yeah, small right. town. I didn't actually know there was a jail there. There is a jail there. I was, I've been there on transit. Um, but, yeah, there, and there's a, yeah, there's, there's jails everywhere. And, I mean, they're the ones that I've been to pretty much every day. Actually, there's like Oberon and there's a couple of other ones that I hadn't gone to, the minimum security. Um, but as on what they call an E-classo, which is um, the lowest or the highest classification you can have, which means SKP, um, which means you're always in maximum security, you know, even though I did um, in my early days. I mean, I escaped from old Silverwater Jail, which is like a medium security prison. But, yeah, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the journey. Look, basically, right, let's, let's be really honest, I was um, – I was in obsession and compulsion to get and use more heroin. And because of that, it took me to some very, very dark places, you know. I was um, an animal, you know, in every aspect of the word. I had no care for, you know, community, for family, all I cared about. And when I say cared about, all I was able to focus on was just the getting and using more drugs on a daily basis. And that took me to some very, very dark places. I had overdosed many, many, many times. I've even had broken ribs from the sea from the paramedics giving me CPR, um, you know, I'm absolutely blessed to be alive. Like I overdose in the most – oh, whenever I'd have a big shot, which is a big injection of heroin, I would know when I was going to overdose. I don't mean to trigger people, but I'll tell you what happens is you get this taste. Um, heroin, when you inject heroin, it gives you this taste in the back of your throat and that taste, the strength of that taste could almost tell you if I was going to drop. So I became so good at it that I know I'd overdose and I'd walk out somewhere where somebody would find me and just blessed to my uh, – even like in the back of a set of flats once, somebody found me. Just Someone just happened to walk through that corridor at that time. Otherwise, I'd be dead, Karen. Mm. Well, I actually know why you are here today and why you didn't die, and that's because you're doing such an amazing job. And and what I've got to know of you, Danny, I just absolutely love you, and you keep me smiling thank when I talk you, to you because it's such a different life to my life, but you are amazing. What's a day in the life of jail like in well, maximum security, maybe uh, after you've escaped? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Look, it, it's it's exactly the same as yesterday and it's going to be exactly the same as tomorrow. So the day in the life of jail, you're 17 hours locked in your cell minimum. Um, sometimes it's 23 hours, you know, depending. Um, like I can guarantee you through COVID, those guys probably didn't get out for weeks. Um, but often you spend at least... 17 hours in the, in the cell, so you're locked in at 3.30, you get out maybe at 8 in the morning. They'll literally come um, drop your breakfast at the door. They'll unlock the big thick doors. They'll kick your breakfast in the door at 8 a.m. and then about half an hour later um, they'll let you out, you know, and then you've usually kicked out in the yard every day. It's not as if you can hang around the cells and be all comfy. Like you're kicked out in the yard, which definitely causes dramas as well, you know, like um, out in that yard, you know, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. Um, there's a lot of, you know, trouble that comes from the outside to the inside. So it can be quite a dangerous place as well. You know, I always managed to, um, not always, but certainly got hurt my fair share in prison, but I always managed to pretty much um, uh, not keep my head down, but always just uh, I've got this ability for some reason to be able to connect with the roughest, toughest, buffettiest guys and um, just sort of, 
Um, I don't know, like not always. It doesn't always work, trust me. Like there's some people, just some bad people who just don't give a fuck about (laughs) nothing and all they want to do and they get off and hurting people, you know. But generally I was always able to keep myself pretty safe um, um, in there, you know. And But look, it's a pecking order. Like people get picked off, you know, like it's a horrible, horrible, horrible place. You, look, I I can't say I was in fear the whole time because I really didn't give a fuck about my life back then. I was on the methadone program as well, so I was stoned in jail pretty much every day from the age of 21 to 33. I had a big drink of methadone, which is a synthetic heroin, 120 mules. I was basically on a pink cloud the whole time. I was constantly stoned for 13 years, but so I always had my methadone and let's face it, I'd be smoking pot. In there, I'd be getting on the speed. I was stoned pretty much my whole seven or eight years in jail um, every day. Um, uh-huh. it, yeah, there's a lot of drugs in jail too. And if you've got the right means and if you've got buy-up, and I'm not talking copious amounts, I'm talking like having a cone, like pot, like a little tiny pen lid, like this <laughs> This little pen lid would be the cone. So, But it would just be enough to get me through, you know. Um, so, That's yeah, amazing. it's horrible, horrible, horrible. Life, but Karen, I had to come to the idea that this is my life and just make the most of it, you know. And you couldn't see outside that place. Nah, oh, I definitely had hopes to get out and spend my money and and get on it again. But I knew, I just knew that my life um, moving forward was just jails, institutions. Um, Oh, I thought it was. Anyway, I, I used to tell people being on the heroin or the methadone was just like being a diabetic and I just need my insulin every day. Like, it's not that bad, guys. It's okay. Don't worry about me. I just sort of succumbed to this way of life. Um, I'm a pretty um, understanding, open-minded, accepting individual. And, and that goes even through my addiction. Like, I just said, all right. This is my life, you know. Kick along with it, Dan. Amazing. Look, the great escape. I'm calling it today the great escape. If you're interested in getting more involved in our community, connecting with people who share your interests, you can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. I want to hear that story and I know the people listening to this how you escaped out of Silverwater Jail. Levy set the tone. It was the 6th of February. It was actually my partner's birthday. Um, she was actually pregnant with my unborn um, child at the time and um, I had been attending this religious event. It was held in the, in the visiting area. Now, I just want to clarify, I used to go to this religious event because I had great coffee and biscuits and um, I was on the methadone <laughs> and the methadone I always had sh- cravings for sugar and any opportunity you could get to get out of the cells and go up and be part of something I always took advantage of. I should also mention that my partner had about $30,000 cash of mine stashed outside as well. So that was just itching at me, you know. Um, I'd spent about two years in this same prison over the years too, and I'd noticed this one little weakness in the security of the fence. So it's hard to explain maybe on a podcast, but these fences, they're 24-foot fences and there's this big barrel, about a four-foot um, aluminium barrel that would lean over so it would make it impossible to get up over it. But there was this one spot in the jail and it just so happened that this one spot was connected to the visiting area where 
there's two barrels that met each other, so one had to face the other way. And I thought I could I could get up there, you know. I thought I reckon I could scale that. Back then I only weighed like 65 kilos too. Right now I'm 103 kilos. So I was quite agile and I was young. Um, and, mate, at the end of the visiting um, at the end of the chorus um, night, the the prayer session or whatever it was, everyone's in there holding hands and saying a prayer. I've ducked out the back. Even the officers were involved in this, and I've, I've shimmied my way at the back of the visiting area and managed to um, scale this 20-foot fence. Um, as I was climbing up this fence um, with garbage bin handles, this piece of just these little metal clips, because the, the fences are these wire Things and I was managing to scale up this fence. I was on the corner of the fence as well, which made me able to get up there. I got to the top and I remember thinking that last where I had to reach out to get on top of this barrel, if I fall now, I'm dead. Like I'm going to break my ribs, <laughs> I'm going to break my back. I was a long way up. And anyway, I managed to get up on top of that barrel and, um, well, I'm still about 100 metres inside the jail. Like I'm on top of the fence but I'm about 100 metres still in the jail. So I'm heading towards the the outside of the jail, and as I'm creeping along this fence, like thinking I'm mad, an officer has spotted me up on that fence and, um, as you could imagine, poor Mr Singh, uh, he, he would have freaked <laughs> out. He, he's seen me up there on that fence and he's got straight on the radio. So my plan had been foiled. I had to run and jump and leap off this 24-foot barrel fence right at the end, about the last five metres of the fence is all this razor wire as well. So I'm trying to skip through this razor wire, which I cut my legs up pretty severely. I launched off the top of that fence. Um, by this time, you know, the officer had called the MEU, which is the Metropolitan Enforcement Unit. They've called the police. We've got everyone, dog squads, they're all on their way. I've, I've hit Holker Street, um, which ran down to Parramatta River. I'm running down that street. My arm is black and blue from my shoulder to my wrist because I basically broke my arm when I hit the ground. Um, and I'm bleeding and I managed to get to the bottom of Holker Street and I jumped a couple of fences with one arm and by this time the dog squad was on their way down. I could hear the dogs, I could see the torches. I managed to get through a couple of fences and I've dived into Parramatta River. Karen, I'm <laughs> bleeding, shark-infested, bull shark-infested river. Um, it's pitch dark and at this point in the river, Parramatta River is quite sh- um, short in some distances, but at this point it's about 100 metres to the other side. It's a big swim. I always had plans to swim the river, by the way. Like, that was my plan. <laughs> like, I don't know what, how the hell I would never dive in that river now, you know. But the adrenaline, I'm, at, I'm going across that river, bleeding, pitch dark, water police are on the river. They're on their way. Polar, the helicopter's up above, shining the flashlight, and I get to the other side of the the um the riverbed and I'm in this mud up to my neck, this thick sludge in these mangroves. The water police are just twenty meters away. Polar's up above with the spotlight. They can't see me. I'm in this black, thick mud, um, crawling my way like like GI Joe through the mangroves. <laughs> um, and I I learned from the police report after the fact that they shut down the whole Parramatta River further down. But what had happened is I took this little exit called Duck Creek. Um. And and I come out on Parramatta Speedway about 500 metres later, um, covered in mud, cut my body to pieces a heap more because in this mangroves, in this mud, it was all sharp in there too. So I, I'm, I'm battered by now. 
It was raining that night, Karen, and just so happened as I got out on Parramatta Speedway in this old demolition graveyard of all these smashed up cars, the rain had started, started to, it's like, it's like it was God, it's just the rain was starting to wash off the mud for me. And by the time I come out on James Roos Drive, um, which is like a 10-lane highway, um, I wonder what night it was. Let's say a Thursday night. I've crossed that um, that highway, and basically, I made my way to freedom. I um, I tried to steal a car, which I was not very good at stealing cars, and I didn't get one. <laughs> I forgot to mention I called Michelle on the on the on the phones before my great escape, and that as she answered the phone, this is a phone call from the Silverwater Ramanda Reception Center. If you do not wish to take this call, please hang up now. That's the little message. I said, Michelle, I said, listen, I said, happy birthday. I said, if I could come home tonight, would that be okay? It's like I wanted her permission. And she said, yeah, sure, Danny. I'm sure she's rolling her eyes thinking, yeah, sure, you're coming home, Danny. I said, well, make sure you got some money. And next minute, Karen, I'm in the cab out the front of her house whistling out to her, she comes out freaking the fuck out, as you could imagine. Like, I've just been in jail and I've just escaped. Um, she jumped in the car with some money um, and about half an hour later the police raided her house, my mum's house, my dad's house, and basically we made it to freedom. There's a whole lot more to that story, but um, some crazy shit. Basically, to wrap it up, um, I made it to Western Australia the next day uh, with her Um we um, had New South Wales detectives chasing us all over the country. They ended up getting me on the 14th of February where they extradited me back to Sydney and I always tell that tale. It was Valentine's Day and uh, what a romantic <laughs> ending getting pinched with. Um, my poor <laughs> girlfriend got charged for harbouring a criminal. She had no ch- choice but, um, yeah, so that's the, that's the great escape. <laughs> oh my goodness, Danny! I, I look at some stage. I have to record this whole story of the Great Escape, but absolutely wonderful story. Was there a moment or an aha moment when you realised that you wanted to seek redemption, so to speak, and to change the way of your destructive path? And if so, what motivated you to do this? Yeah, do you know what, Karen? There was not. <laughs> okay, there was not. <laughs> An aha moment. There never was. Like I said, I honestly thought this is my life. But one thing I kept doing because of my mum was I kept going to detox and rehab. I just kept trying. I didn't do it for me at all. I just went to shut her up and my sister. And and, and I had 49 attempts. I've been to every single detox rehab in Sydney, every public system. I was known on a first-name basis. Oh, Danny Shannon's back, Danny Shannon's back. You know, like honestly, I knew the staff. And one in particular, Leslie, she was on the drug court program when I escaped from jail, so she knew me real well. Um, <laughs> and anyway, finally, the last time around, which was, um, let's say, the 13th of September 2009, I entered my 50th detox. You know, this is the detox that my life changed forever. And, mate, to be honest, I had no real... I was just there for a rest. You know, I was using a lot of amphetamines. I was using a lot of heroin. It's like I'd go into these detoxes for a bit of a break so I can restore my system so I can come out and give it another nudge. And that time I rang a few rehabs while I was in there. And sure enough, one step to another, I was in a short-term program that went for 28 days. I then just done the right thing too and I am in another program from there for another six months, which I then went on to do a halfway house for a couple of years. Um, the day my life changed forever, but 
Karen, I think this is a really important thing to share, was Christmas Day 2009. Um, I was in rehab. Um, I'm about 60, 70 days clean and sober. Um, I'm in the horrors. I hate life. I, I, I'm i full of fear. I'm angry. I'm scared. I don't like being life um, clean and sober. And I, I went home to visit my family on Christmas Day. And that day I, I sat around the, the family Christmas table with 15 family members. I'd hurt, stolen, robbed every single one of them. I just could not cope with the shame and guilt. And I left there with a bit of cash in my pocket, bless my family for giving me money. Um, and I thought, fuck <laughs> this, I can't do this, I'm going to get on. And um, that day I, I stood at King's Cross, I, well, I stood at Town Hall Station. Um, across the road to my left would have been the bus that would take me back to rehab and to my right would have been King's Cross. And I thought, I'm going to go and buy some heroin and some cocaine. Um, and I knew what would happen. I knew I'd end up back in rehab. I'd had 50 attempts. I knew I'd end up um, back in jail. I've been there many times. But I didn't know what would happen if I didn't, you know. And I thought that day for the very first time in my life I I did some consequential thinking. And I don't know. This is, this is something that never happens with addicts. We never commit to get on. We're about to give the money and change our mind. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, Karen. It does not happen. But that day... I made it happen that day. I said, I'm, I'm, today I'm not going to do it. I'll do it tomorrow. I'm not going to do it today. And that day I went and got on the bus. And that day I made a different decision for the first time in my life. I did not get on, you know, and one day at a time, one foot in front of the other ever since then. Um, I completely, a miracle happened to me that day, Karen. I lost the obsession and compulsion to use drugs and I have not come close to picking up another substance since Christmas Day 2009. So that's 14 years, two months ago now. Um, So, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge, huge part of my story. That's the day my life changed forever, you know. Well, congratulations on making Thanks. the decision to go left instead of right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was, the turning point. Oh, that's the, the turning, turning point. point. Yes. Oh, that was your, your aha moment. Yes it, yes, it really <laughs> oh, was. Yeah. I that's what I love about you, Danny, though. You're not afraid to share this story. Nah, I'm and it's not. what inspires others. And that's why people on stage uh, in the audience just love hearing you uh, because you are so frank and honest. You're just such a real bigger than life person. In your challenges, what are the biggest challenges you faced in recovery? I want to go inside and outside jail, but your recovery wasn't at all inside jail. And what sort of help was available? The biggest challenges in recovery is dealing with life on life's terms without the use of a drink or a drug, you know. Like I'd been numbed for 17 years at least, um, constantly stoned, this inner glow from substances, heroin mainly or methadone, you know. So imagine taking all that away. That was my coping mechanism for so long, Um I hated life without that. Like I thought that's what life was all about, just fucking myself up and changing the way I feel. And um, and so my biggest challenge is oh, the uncomfortability, you know, like I could – I thought I hated people. I didn't hate people at all. I was just so incredibly – I was scared of people. I didn't – I was that guy that would not even ask somebody for directions because I was so – it's not as, as if I was ashamed of myself. I just couldn't. I just didn't have it in me to speak up and ask somebody. You know, obviously today, Karen, you can't shut me up. But um, I've learned that over the time. You know, but 
So the biggest challenges was anxiety, fear, anger, sadness, madness, um, oh, raw, unguarded, sitting in the room after 17 years of substances being in my body with nothing, a cigarette. I had a cigarette, you know, um, and chocolate. Like they're the only two things that would sort of help change the way you feel. And so, yeah, living life on life's terms without all that stuff, For I hate to say it, but, um, you know, for a year, even 18 months was so, so difficult. Karen, this is a big statement. I don't want to put anybody off recovery, but keep in mind the message behind it. Like through my 17 years of using and abusing, I never once thought about taking my life until I got clean. Like it wasn't until I entered recovery in the absolute horrors, full of anxiety, fear, anger, sadness, that I thought I just want to walk in front of this bus, you know. Like um, it was Ooh. that hard. It was that hard. But, um, you know, I held on and I had those feelings and thoughts. I don't think, I'm not saying I was, oh, it's weird. When I think about it, I remember I'd be standing at the bus stop just thinking, fuck this, I can't do this anymore, you know. Like, um, So it was really challenging. But I want to say this, I, I was about 10 months clean. I'd lost my licence, by the way, my driver's licence for 40 years, 4-0. <laughs> I never had a licence, right, because I was I was caught driving stolen cars from the age of 15. So before I could even get a licence, I was disqualified because of because of that. So, um, And I just mentioned that because in my early days of recovery, it's not as if I had a driver's licence. And people that complain about not having transport, not having a car, like fucking get on a bus or a train, like thank God I didn't have a licence because – for five years in my recovery, I didn't have to get myself in any debt with a car or get any speeding fines because mm. all I had to do was focus on myself. Yeah, so I was just, um, I just look, I used to get around my early days of recovery. I'd catch a bus, a train everywhere. I'm a member of Narcotics Anonymous. I got him heavily involved in the 12 step fellowship, um, something I truly, truly believe in. You know, nothing else had worked for me. I got connected with hundreds of other people in my area who are absolutely killing it as they still are you know there's everywhere you look um i know there's people everywhere um you know living their best lives in recovery and in that journey i um you know i started working i did a lot of counseling i did a lot of therapy i did the 12 steps i finally started to um i was 10 months clean and i was on my way home from a meeting late one night and i looked up at the moon and for the very first time in my life and for the very first time in that recovery, I felt this amazing kind of spiritual feeling. It was me sort of connected like some kind of a spiritual awakening and it was the moon. The moon just made me feel like, wow, like I'm alive, you know. It made me feel so alive and um, kind of my journey, my thinking, my stinking thinking started to change from there. I thought, you know what, life Life can be okay without the use of substance. I still had the madness. Of course, I mentioned for about 18 months I struggled, but that day was like my first spiritual awakening where I thought there's so much more to life. I felt gratitude, you know, for the first oh. time in my life, and I thought I can do this. And, um, you know, I, I continued. I went on. I started studying at two years clean in, in community services. I should also say I got a job at about six months clean as well. I started working my ass off too. I started becoming addicted to saving money. I started traveling. I went to my first NA convention, Narcotics Anonymous convention in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I was about 10 months clean. Or, no, I was about 11 months clean, and I was opening my eyes up to this world of recovery 
overseas and all these other people from all over the world coming to this one event. I then went on to travel many, many, many times. I've been to Bali about 30 times. I've been to Thailand five or six times. I've been to America quite a few times. Like saving money and traveling became a big thing for me. And, yeah, so it's been an amazing journey, you know. I know the mission, I've read your mission statement, and it's to bring happiness and empowerment to people's lives as a human being and a man in recovery. And you do this by inspiring others through your incredible story. But I'm going to say goodbye there and will you come back next week? I would love to share um, my journey with Encapsulate and come back next week. Thanks, Okay, so till next week, Danny, because this is just such an amazing story. If Danny's story resonated with you in any way, please share your thoughts on our Facebook page. And to learn more about Danny and Encapsulator, both links will be on the podcast description. Thank you for tuning in to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. We'd like to invite you to support us by purchasing a backstage pass, costing about the same as two cups of coffee each month. With the Backstage Pass, you'll gain access to workshops and exclusive content, including videos from our live events. You can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. We can continue to show that sharing stories changes lives. 